Hey, I'm Ben Silverio. And I'm Aaron Klein. And I'm Ansel Birch, your host in post. And, and it's time to party. party. Yeah. We are not doctors and we don't give medical advice. Please drink responsibly. The laser guns, but we can't hear them because everybody's deaf. Because of the plague. <laughs> Oh, this plague. <laughs> well, welcome everybody to episode three of our discussion of Beyond the Time Barrier from 1960. It's the edutainment section. Yeah, it you know, is. Where we, yes, it is. <laughs> where we pick a piece of technology. Usually we pick a t- piece of technology. Spoiler, this episode's going to be a little bit different on my end. But we pick something from the movie and we do a shallow, lazy river style, sit back, dive on in. Not a deep dive. We're not in an Olympic pool, no. people. We're, we're really here on a lazy river, <laughs> smoothing along down our lazy river of edutainment. Yes. It's mostly your butt and your ankles that are going to get wet in this. Exactly. The rest of you is like, I'm safe. Everything's good. If you like make an abrupt turn, maybe you'll get dumped in with our river of information, but you never know. We'll, 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 it's a journey we'll all be on together. Yeah. You, you got to be careful about the sharp turns, though, because you'll end up in 2024. Exactly. You start out in a river in 1960 and then you take a sharp turn and boom, there you are, 2024. No one can hear you. No one can communicate. No one has learned sign language for some reason, but there you are. Everyone has weird facial hair. <laughs> Everybody, I mean, again, 2024 seems, uh, seems likely. The monkey tail is apparently a thing people are doing. Oh my God. <laughs> hey, I mean, if mullets That's are making a fashion. comeback, you never know. Dude, mullets are so popular right yeah. now. It is wild. I kind of love it. I like. I don't think I would ever have a mullet. Although I kind of had a mullet many years ago because I did the double side shave and I had it like long mm. in the top and on the back. But that was before mullets were cool. Yeah. So I just looked real weird. Just encouraged old women to come up to me and tell me how interesting they thought my hair was. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I always said thank you. I was like, I know you mean this is an insult, but I'm going to pretend like I don't know that. <laughs> it's like a bless your heart situation. It's exactly what it is. Anytime an old woman tells you something you're wearing or like have on you is interesting, what they mean is, I think that's weird. I'm like, oh, okay. Thanks, I think. <laughs> oh, your purple hair is so interesting, yeah. I don't know what that accent was. It <laughs> <laughs> was like Minnesota Canadian. <laughs> They're basically the same place. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Might as well be the same accent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Ben. Yes. Well, first, before we get into it, I suppose there are people who may have dropped in just to this edutainment section. If so, what's up? You're my people. Yes. So I don't know why you decided to do that, but here you are. <laughs> We're talking about the 1960 movie, The Time Barrier. Ben, do you want to give a quick summary on this weird sure. plot? <laughs> According to IMDb, in 1960... A military test pilot is caught in a time warp that propels him to the year 2024, where he finds a plague has sterilized the world's population. That's it. That's the whole plot. That's the whole. That's it. Maybe 75 minutes long. (laughs) I think it's delightful. Ben hated it. Now you're caught up, everybody. (laughs) And that's what you miss on Glee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh. Oh my God. Man. Uh, yeah, so as Aaron alluded to, we're going to do things a little differently um, while I'm coming at you with edutainment from the technical side. Aaron's bringing you the tea this week. That's right. I'm ready. Oh, it's, yes. It is piping hot and it is from the 30s. I'm ready. 
<laughs> Aaron's favorite oh, yeah. kind of tea. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, All right, Ben. Okay. What did you pick? What are we doing? All right. So I did kind of mention that this was a weird pick, right? But I did kind of talk about it in episode two. Do you have any guesses Ooh. of what my edutainment pick is? Um. Oh, my God. Is it the triangle doors? <laughs> it's sliding doors. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> I can't believe you got it on the first try. I, can't either. <laughs> I thought it was going to be those swivel lights. <laughs> oh, that's a good guess, too. No, that was total shot in the dark. I was like, if I had to pick something, what would I have picked? What were your, did you have any other, what was your pool that you chose from within? Or was it just like, I'm doing sliding it doors? It was sliding doors or belts. Ooh, I wouldn't have picked belts. That's funny you mentioned that in the last yes, episode I did. too about the weird giant belts. <laughs> that would have been a good one. But yeah, uh, after I noticed those big triangle doors and how impractical they were, uh, specifically for that movie, not in general, uh, I, I just thought about sliding doors and when they became popular and when they started to become in use. And apparently, uh, sliding doors were used as early as the first century ce in roman houses as evidenced what? by archaeological finds in pompeii really yeah. wow i'm very surprised by that i for sure thought you were gonna say like 1942 yeah, right <laughs> like apparently the uh the mechanism of uh sliding doors goes all the way back to roman and greek culture like way back in the day but it wasn't until 1931 uh, was when engineers Horace H. Raymond and Sheldon S. Robbie of the tool and hardware manufacturer Stanley Works uh, first designed the automatic door that we come to think of today. Um, it was patented and used in Wilcox Pier, uh, a restaurant in West Haven, Connecticut, uh, to help the waiters who were carrying food and drinks oh interesting yeah uh Duh, this, that makes a lot of sense right so uh found a problem found a way to fix it and apparently yeah the entire system plus installation was a hundred bucks hundred dollars in 1931 is pretty expensive yeah. that's a mm. that's not super cheap but also like way less than i thought you were gonna yeah. say <laughs> so when i was looking up automatic doors like as we know them like that's when it started right but apparently in ancient rome a mathematician heron of alexandria invented the first known automatic door he described two different ways of doing it the first was using heat from a fire built in the city's temple then after a few hours of atmospheric pressure buildup in a brass vessel, it would make the water uh, pump into containers that acted as weights. And through ropes and pulleys, the temple's doors would automatically open. Rome fucking loved using water. They yeah. loved that they had an aqueduct, so that makes sense. Yeah. They were like, oh, cool. Uh, everyone's going to come to the temple to pray at this time. Let's turn up the doors yeah that makes sense <laughs> turn up the doors <laughs> so get real crazy and turn up the doors <laughs> so yeah uh and then you know automatic doors 
started to become more popular after that you know as we've come to know them the technology has changed with like you know uh with the matte actuators like just mm-hmm. stepping on something so the door opens and then the buttons and stuff but i found it really interesting that it traced back to ancient rome like that makes a lot of sense romans mm-hmm. did some cool shit yeah dude rome's wild it's it's one of those places where it's like i it almost doesn't feel real when you really start to dr- dive into like wow they had a lot like their technology was extraordinarily advanced yeah. for what we would think of as like an ancient civilization or we do think of as an ancient civilization very interesting and they did it all without wearing pants they had the, they had the right idea with the toga. Just saying. Right? They were like, we're not dealing with infection. We're everybody's air drying. Everyone's good to go. <laughs> it's hot. It there. makes sense. It is hot. <laughs> A Mediterranean uh, lifestyle. Right. <laughs> well, there you have it. Well, now you know cultural. a little bit more about doors, specifically automatic sliding doors. Absolutely. <laughs> Also, just as a, this is not something I did research about for this, but something I happen to know off the top of my head, I know that the way that the doors are operated in that movie is the same way that the doors were operated in Star Trek, which is that there are two people standing on either side of the door, pulling them open. That makes sense. (laughs) That's how those doors work. (laughs) That's one of those things when you watch uh, Star Trek, the original series, shout out Extracts, my other podcast where we talk about this more extensively, but there are a lot of times where because the production crew can't see them, they like don't get the timing right on the doors and so they have to like refilm it a bunch of times because you'll like smash into a door or they'll open before people are ready and so there's like crew behind it so i know that that's part of how they made these doors work as well <laughs> these very tiny triangular doors <laughs> <laughs> they're so tiny like at least they could have been like head level just a I little higher yeah right yeah it's just make, I I guess part of it is that that's the deal with the triangle though is that once you make the top a little taller like it exponentially makes the rest of it bigger and so you wind up taking a lot more space unless you want a, like a tiny little triangle like a pie slice <laughs> and then everyone's got to like shimmy through it. <laughs> it is that isosceles I think so uh, and these are all equilaterals yeah. right like the whole set design of this was all equilateral am I just revealing to our listeners that I don't remember much about math class is that what cool. <laughs> I barely made it out of math I mean, class. You and me both. <laughs> I I am married to a person who can do math, so that I don't have to do math. Yeah, who needs math? Oh my god! Everyone needs math. Is, is the I answer. was gonna say everybody needs Isosceles, math. Isosceles, yes. There was okay. Good. I made a note while uh, Michael and I were watching Beyond the Time Barrier, where they were talking about um, the. Uh, here we go. Time is not affected by the laws of gravity. Husband, who actually knows how math works, laughs out loud. False! <laughs> Which is, I felt like, you know what? You're right, and I won't question you. <laughs> Einstein Einstein theorized that one. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I don't know enough about math to be able to prove or unprove. Yeah, anyway. it's true. Who am I? I know I know math. <laughs> not, my, not my strong suit. All right. Ben, ready for the tea. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. All right. So normally the way that this section works is that we pull a piece of technology from the movie. The things that I wrote down as possibilities were runways, airplanes, practical effects, bald caps, and movie ratings. Bald caps. Because this movie... 
I really thought about it because they were so bad. I was like, I must so know more bad. about this. But then I was like, but then it's like, okay, but really what that is is a practical effect with costume and makeup. And like, if you're going to talk sure. about ball caps, you then not talk about practical effects. So I decided to save it for now because I fell down the biggest fucking rabbit hole learning about the way that this movie was made and the people who produced and directed it. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to go into the technology of how the fuck did this movie happen? Yes. So, okay. So this movie was produced by two different guys. Uh, Clark, who plays the lead guy, Bill Allison. He was the producer and he was originally going to be the director of this movie. But he had just finished directing and starring in another movie. And so he wanted to like, okay, I'll just star in this movie. I'll have somebody else direct it so I can take a little off my plate. So he brought in Edgar G. Ulmer. So here are some facts about this movie. Edward G. Almer's wife, Shirley, worked as a script editor on this. And his daughter, Ariane Arden, is the female oh, yeah. pilot who's who is we talked about in the last episode about being one of the more like compelling characters who comes out of nowhere. It's his daughter. And she is the only speaking woman in this yeah. entire movie. So Almer's daughter is this is uh, Ariane Arden. And so she plays the female pilot. Put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that later. So those are the upfront facts that you should know about this. So they're all acting along with... Uh, Clark, who, as I said, played Bill Allison. So here's here's how we wound up on this army base in Texas. The people who funded this movie were based in Texas, and they demanded that it be shot in Texas where, quote, film, un- film unions have no sway, unquote. Ooh. So that's part of why they filmed this here is because they wanted to be able to, like, jam this production through as quickly as possible. Ben, if you had to guess, how long do you think they filmed this movie for? Um... Three weeks. Ten days. Ten days. Ten days. Yeah. Jesus. Again, makes me appreciate the movie more knowing like, man, they really fucking flew through this. Like they, the, the script, not great. Sure. There's a lot of like weird holes and shit in it, but knowing that the actors did all of this in 10 days feels very impressive. Also the budget, these people who, forced them to come to Texas to film this on this airbase only gave them $125,000. So like there's a lot in this movie, like the practical effects, even though they're not super great, like that costs money. And like we talked about in the last episode too, all of those triangle transitions cost money too. And so I found it interesting knowing that like all of this was crammed together, made me feel like, okay, this, this is a cheap, cheaply made movie that feels like, it was given more time and care and attention than it actually was, which makes me appreciate it more. So now we know this. We know that they're out with no no film unions, no one to say like, hey, you can't do that. And a great example of that is that all of the film's action sequences were using real Air Force weapons and M1 carbine and M1911A1 pistols, which were real, and that the actors, quote, we're taking care not to fire the weapons directly at what? each other, but we're actually firing them like on this air force base for real. <laughs> yes. Is that not the wildest shit you've ever heard? It's nuts. Like that's not a word that I use lightly, but it is absolutely insane to give actors real guns and be like, good luck. I guess <laughs> like they're taking care not to fire them directly at each other while they're filming this in 10 days like nuts absolutely fucking wild Every, anything goes down in texas 
Anything goes in Texas where the film crews have no rights. Yeah, just, just do us a favor and don't shoot anybody. Here you go. Oh my god. Right? Like, try not to shoot anyone directly. Like, okay, I'll try not to. Especially like knowing, having seen it, knowing that there's like those scenes are chaotic. Yeah. Also, that there's like a lot going on in those scenes while that's happening. Like, here's a gun. Good luck. It's 1960. Oh, <laughs> fucking man. nuts. Total, totally wild. So. Going back to the woman we talked about before, the director's daughter, Ari... Ariane Arden. Ariane, yes. Ariane Arden. So, part of the reason that I liked her is I felt like that she was a really compelling character, and it turned out, too, that she actually did, like, a lot of really interesting acting work inside of this. So, when she, like, takes off her jumpsuit in that scene and it's, like, changing, the character is named after a famous ballerina, and so she worked with her dad in order to choreograph the jumpsuit being taken off like a ballet routine. That's why it's kind of like bigger. It like flows a little bit. She does like a pirouette at one point. It's because it's a direct nod to the ballerina dancer that the character is named after. Mm. So that's part of it. And then also she has that big speech and she uses all of these like really interesting vocal inflections. She's directly mimicking Laurence Olivier's vocal inflections from his St. Crispin's Day speech in Henry V, which I found really interesting too, that like here's this very small character inside of this where this woman really took the care to like put the time and effort into making this a fully complete character that we don't even read necessarily in that way, but I think helps also contribute to the kind of timelessness that we talked about before about the way that this movie holds together. So that's Ariane Arden. We're going back to Clark. So Clark, the producer slash Bill Allison in the movie, he has the rights to the movie. Everything's finished. It's like put together mostly. It's not a complete product, but it's, it's in the like, all right, I'm going to sell this to a bigger production studio in order to distribute it. So he takes it to the studio AIP and he is offered distribution credits for the rights to the movie, but tells AIP, I want you to make me a contract director. I like, I want to be given the opportunity to work on more sci-fi movies like this. This is a thing I want to pursue. And they flat out tell him, no, we don't do contract hires anymore. We're switching over. The studio system is changing. We don't do that anymore. Everybody is freelance. We're not giving this opportunity. And so he is like, all right, deuces. I'm taking the movie then. If you're not going to give this to me for what I want, I think I deserve more and I'm taking the movie and I'm going. So he goes to a different production company, PIP. They give him what he wants. They give him the distribution rights that he wants and are willing to like work with him further going forward. But then PIP goes bankrupt and AIP buys PIP. And so they get the movie for only the laboratory costs. So that's where all of those like weird middle pieces where it feels like it's cut together of different movies. Like it's because all AIP had to pay for were those lab cuts of the movies mm. in order to distribute it. They didn't pay Clark a fucking dime for this movie. Wow. They wound up getting it when they just bought PIP. So like there's this very convoluted, like he starred in this and he got paid to act in it, but as a producer, got nothing, was absolutely fucked over by this. So that's Clark. So, all right, here's him. <laughs> We've gone to him. Now let's go back many years into the past. This is 1960, right? That they yes. totally fucked over Clark. Now we're going to go back and we're going to talk about Edward G. Ulmer in 1934. Okay. So Edward G. Ulmer is the director of this movie. He's the one that Clark brought in because he was like, I'm exhausted. I need someone else to help me. 
The thing about Edward G. Ulmer at this point is he's a super well-known director. He has been directing for a very long time, like over 30 years. He originally was a Jewish, Marvarian, Austrian-American. He was born in what's now the Czech Republic and immigrated to the United States and started working as a director. Okay. So he's mostly known as having worked on B-movies and low-budget pictures. But there's a reason for that. So... His work was so stylized and eccentric, which, like, you can kind of see... We talked about the bones and the structure of the movie and, like, the triangle cuts and the way that he tries to, like, use these interesting motifs. He's one of the people that eventually, after his retirement, becomes part of the core auteur theory in academia. So he he's part of that group of... This is a filmmaker who has a very specific style, who does these things in a really interesting way that draws people in. So this sets Beyond the Time Barrier in this like really weird part of his career also. This is the third to last movie he ever did. So we're like at the very end of the auteur part of his career because he's like set this very specific style. So why did he only make B-movies if he was like this really fancy, impressive director? And the answer is because he was part of a super old school Hollywood style scandal. So... When he first started directing, he had made two movies, and the second movie he ever made was called, many people might know this one, The Black Cat from 1934, starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, yeah. which was a super well-received movie. It was the biggest movie of the year for Universal. It turned him into like a huge directorial star. But he was having an affair with a woman named Shirley Kassler, who was married to Max Alexander, an independent producer, who was the nephew of Universal Studio head Carl LeMail, which meant that the second they found out that he was having an affair with this man's wife, he was immediately blacklisted, and so was she. And so he was only allowed, basically, to work on these B-movies and, like, independently produced things because he was straight up blacklisted for having had this affair with Shirley. But he and Shirley, so she divorces her husband Max in 19... 19- they got married in 1933. She starts having this affair with Ulmer in 1934, like basically the second they got married. So it's like an old school Hollywood, like they probably weren't really meant to be together. It's more of a studio marriage that these two people are together, Max and Shirley. Now she's met Ulmer and falls in love with him. And they start having this affair. She gets divorced from Max Alexander in 1936 and immediately marries Ulmer, like almost immediately. Later this year, the two of them get married. They stay married until he dies in 1972. So, like, I think it's very romantic that they both obliterated their careers, basically, and then went on to continue doing... She's the script supervisor, as I said at the beginning of the edutainment section. Like, they still worked together until he died. She was his script editor and, like, worked very closely with him on these kind of things. And that's why their daughter, Ariana... Ariana Arden is in this movie because she's included in this blacklist because she's marked by this family Mm. that had this old school Mm. Hollywood scandal. So that was 1934 that that happened. And we're in 1960 now. Like they have an adult daughter. They still work together. Like this is the end of his career basically, but forever tainted was never allowed to come back and make really big movies. He has a couple of other like really well received movies. Uh, Planet X is one of them. Where people, again, they see him as an auteur and they understand that he's very talented, but is just never allowed back in under the Universal Studio because he deeply offended the nephew of the studio head at the time. 
So there you go. There's a little shallow dive on like 1934 gossip rags about the director of this movie. Wow. Plus also like, it, I think it's very interesting too that you get this director who's blacklisted and has this like really interesting culmination and this is the end of his career along with the other producer, Clark, who was totally fucked over by the studios about the distribution of this and doesn't make any money from it. It's I think it's a very interesting pairing of these two people. And again, I think it makes me appreciate this movie more knowing like, man, they like really got fucked over both of them did and wound up making what is still a very interesting movie i think so there you go that's my i was very excited about it because i thought it was really i literally like i was trying to figure out what to talk about for the edutainment section and i just fell down a rabbit hole learning about this so (laughs) i hope that other people found it at least a little bit interesting but yep there we go (laughs) wow that's that's cute that it's ulmer and his wife met like that i agree i feel like 1934 you meet an old part i'm sure part of the reason that i was drawn to this story is because i'm reading the book uh seven husbands of evelyn hugo Mm. which is basically about old hollywood and like arranged studio marriages and what is it like to then get at the part that i'm at now where you're divorcing from someone who then makes you blacklisted like i just think the concept is fascinating and like i know that it still exists in hollywood that you're marked by who your acquaintances are and how you date and who you date and who you marry and who you divorce. But it was just so much more straightforward then where it was like, oh, you had an affair with this woman. Everyone's having an affairs, but you picked this woman. Like, that's it. You're done forever. And like, they still stayed together despite all of that, which I think is a real testament to the fact that they obviously cared about yeah. each other too. Very romantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how we managed to fuse our love of time travel movies with old Hollywood. Yes, <laughs> with this ridiculous movie. <laughs> uh, another it is ridiculous. Another fun fact about Darlene Tompkins that I did not mm-hmm. realize until looking at the IMDb. Uh, she's also in Blue Hawaii with Elvis. What? <laughs> She plays Patsy Simon, who I'm not recalling at the moment, but looking at the at this like picture of the cast, I'm just like, oh, there she is. That's that's Tyranny, right? Princess yes. Dar- Darling Tom right. fans. I wondered why she looked familiar. I just assumed, honestly, I was like, oh, she's just like a generically pretty blonde lady from the 60s. But that makes sense <laughs> that she is in other things, too. Oh, interesting. Uh, and then there was what a weird movie. <laughs> there was another dude that uh, that Warwick re- recognized, um, and I'm just like, oh crap! Right, yes, the guy who plays the Supreme, uh, Vladimir Sokolov. He mm-hmm. was in um, the 1960 production of The Magnificent Seven. Yes, yes. Honestly, he looks so much like Edward James almost to me yeah. that I just kind of read him as as Edward James almost for the whole movie. <laughs> it's the black and white and the wig that he's wearing i was just like oh yeah this is clearly edward james almost sure so say we all of course (laughs) oh man that's really hearing the background details of beyond the time barrier makes me respect it a little bit more for sure Mm -hmm. um and i'm I mean, the movie's still not great, but I definitely, I, I can get behind a, an underdog, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Robert Clark got the shit end of the stick there. For real. Like, for real, for real. 
it's i i just like kept going backwards and i was like okay so then this company got sold and then they wound up with this and then it was just like nothing he got nothing like oh fuck yeah, that's real shitty. And it's so interesting that, that it happened to a movie that feels now so much of its time. You know, like mm-hmm. thinking about yes. the, the mm-hmm. fears that would have been going through people's minds as the space program is spooling up. Um, this is this mm-hmm. could have been. You know, this could have really spoken to a lot of people at the time. And the fact that it didn't get the attention it deserved is sort of interesting yeah it's so interesting that it feels timeless like we've talked about a lot and yet we'd never heard of it like i feel like between the three of us we've heard of lots of things and like have pretty extensive knowledge on this kind of stuff and like that this was just something that we literally stumbled on because we needed something in the moment it like i'm really glad that we found this and have seen this like little capsule of of both like the the good bones of it, the structure of it that clearly influenced other things, but also to get this like additional background on like this movie sat at a very weird precipice in the Hollywood system. And like, I'm glad that we got to like learn and talk a little about that as well. Hell yeah. A little happy accident. Uh, yeah. That's what makes parties great, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Woo! Do you wanna... So thanks Dr. Who movie for being hard to get a hold of. <laughs> hey, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to hear a really cool quote from Edward Almer that I wrote sure. down? You're gonna. I'm gonna. Whether you want to hear it or not, I'm gonna tell you. Is so. <laughs> <laughs> this great quote towards the end of his life where he said, "I really am looking for absolution for all the things I had to do for money's sake." Wow. Which feels like, again, that he said this before the uh, before 1960, before Beyond the Time Barrier, and I feel like that makes me like this more too. Where it's like, oh, this is a thing you wanted to do. This wasn't something that you had to do because you were blacklisted and you had to make money and you had to support your family. This was a choice that you made because you wanted to do this. So I found that really interesting. That, and I just love that line. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that mentality too. Like Kevin Smith definitely adopted that more after he had a heart attack where mm-hmm. he was just like, you know what? I tried making other movies, but let me, let me just go back to making Kevin Smith movies. And then he did Jane yeah. about reboot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I feel like it, I think it's nice to hear someone say something like that too, where they're like, I'm just going to embrace the freedom that I've earned because I fucking earned it. Hell yeah. It. Like that, that's what an interesting movie. Uh, what a, what a good experience this was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, party people. I think that does right. it for beyond the time barrier. Yes, it sure does. Ooh, that was, that was a trip, right? It was cuckoo bananas. It- it was a trip, all right. A trip around the curve of the Earth at terminal velocity. I don't know. I was going to make a joke about the time travel method, but it's really confusing. So, you know, pretend that I made a great joke. <laughs> we'll fix it I mean, in post. It's the same time travel mechanism as Superman 2. <laughs> you know what? Fair. Just, just without the angle. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, I also don't like Superman, so. I know. As I get older, he grows on me, but, you know. Yeah. Superman. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, oh. We we more than ever need a Superman in our lives, and yet we're all just like, God, you're fucking boring. <laughs> Poor Clark. <laughs> anyway, you can find us on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm at NYD Urgency on Instagram. And I am at BSilverio20 on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Indecisionist on Twitter and The Indecisionist on Instagram. Special thanks to April Moralba for our podcast art and to Marlon Longit of Marlon the Shakes for our amazing music. You can use the hashtag time to party. That's time the number two party if you want to interact with us. But until then, party people, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. Air bass for air bass? That's not a bass. Air, air bass. Violin.